Welcome to the Professional Insight Podcast. Uh, thank you very much for everyone for attending and listening and uh, sharing and caring. Thank you to our sponsors, Brand Boulevard. We really appreciate it, as always. My name's Brandon Curry. I'm Jeff Collins. Trevor Lindy. There's no Josh Bond on this particular episode. Yes, uh, we should explain. Uh, he woke up a little under the weather today. He woke up under the weather. He's done his uh, COVID protocol and doesn't have it. He does not have the vid. Yeah. <laughs> but we do have a, one of our uh, more frequent guests on, uh, Grant LaFleche from the Niagara Dailies. And, How you doing? And you're sometimes in the Toronto Star, aren't you? Uh, more and more frequently, yes. Like, does that, is, like, is that kind of like the equivalent of syndication? No. Uh, no, because syndication would mean that the work is being sold for broadcast or print to another company, right? Oh. So the best example of syndication is like the old uh, Star Trek, the original Star Trek TV show was owned by Desilu uh, Productions, which did the um, Lucille Ball show. Uh, and after its three-year run, it was later sold to NBC and other networks. And that's why you saw it in syndication when it became popular. You used to see that with sitcoms all the time too, before the advent of So no, I work for Torstar. Uh, and I do uh, projects and investigations with Torstar in addition to my work here. Uh, and then when we have stories that are of interest to the larger provincial audience, uh, they'll like we did this past weekend, uh, that gets picked up in the Toronto Star as well. You get more money for that? Financial planner no. asking? No. That's BS, <laughs> but anyway, okay. You don't so get into this business to make money, son. Well, no, clearly not. Um, so on that, I'll call it syndication. On that, uh, but you were just explained that it's not. I know, I know. In I, any way, I just like busting Grant's chops because I call, I call it syndication anyway. Watch oh. Joe Rogan. Oh, shut up. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you should. Come on, Grant. Anyway, uh, Lafleche and I have a thing going on. It's 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 fine. It's fine. Um, as let's go on. So we're recording this uh, February seventeenth um, in Niagara. Slow news day, slow news weekend, really, Grant. Nothing happened. Nothing happened at all. Before we begin, I would just like, and I am speaking on behalf of our entire panel and including Josh, who's not here. Um, we appreciate um, your article. Um, we, we, we do not condone under any circumstances the comments that were made um, towards Dr. Herji, any of the staff, towards you, towards anything like that. I think you know me and I think you've known the guys well enough that you and I can have a fairly good debate, me and you. Mm -hmm. And then we walk away, we bury the swords, and either we agree to disagree or you're going to convert me or I'm going to convert you, but that really rarely happens, the latter. Um, but I just want that to be on the record, please. Um, I, I think that the what has happened this past weekend, and I agree with Tim Dennis when he says this, is for those who don't listen to 610 CKTV, because um, you're on there quite a bit, uh, Grant, um, you know, questioning lockdowns in a, in a debate in, in, in professional way does not make you an anti-mask or an anti-vaxxer. You should have that debate. But what took place over this past weekend was despicable and deplorable. Um, so if you want to go into a little bit of detail for those that may not know of our listeners. Uh, sure. So I, I guess by background, and I, and I think just to segue off of what you just said, there's a couple of distinct things that appear to be happening in the world of social media, which I'm convinced historians will now look back at us and just say that social media was a very big mistake. 
Yes, yes, I agree with you on that one. So I think the caveat all of this is it's important to understand that the pandemic does not affect everybody equally. Um, there are, it, it doesn't affect them equally in terms of the illness. We know that if you're older and sicker, you're much more vulnerable to serious symptoms or death. Um, we know that it has hit poor racialized communities more than affluent white communities. We know that some people have been able to keep working, journalists, for instance, um, through the pandemic, uh, other people, particularly, the, I mean, you gotta remember Canada, over time has become increasingly a service economy. We don't build stuff right. the way we used to. And as a function of that, when you get clobbered by something like a pandemic, the service industry, restaurants, salons, uh, you know, bars, bookstores, I mean, anything that falls under that umbrella get disproportionately disadvantaged um, by the steps that are necessary to curb the virus. So I think it's important to know that. And when people are online or they're in public and they're saying, look, my business can reopen and I'm you know, suffering and I'm having trouble paying my bills, that's very real. And it's important that people realize that's real because I think what's happened is that conversation has become dominated by something else that wears those concerns almost like a mask. Somehow mixed in with the people who are saying, you know, look at my restaurant's not going to survive, or I just want to know when I can reopen or how much I can reopen. I mean, these are reasonable things to talk about. Um, are people who are QAnon supporters, anti-maskers, people think it's a pandemic or a scandemic. Um, all this kind of conspiracy theory stuff has become laced in these social media groups and on pages of people who are genuinely suffering and trying to find support or information. Right? What happened this past weekend was was the owner of a, so as you know, and I don't know if you guys have had a chance to talk about this yet, um, the provincial government ended the stay-at-home order. They're moving us back into their rainbow color restrictions uh, that really did Well, nothing. we're in a shade, though. We're in a shade, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were moved into, back into their color-coded system, which yeah. did, really did nothing to even stem the tide of the second wave, which really hit Niagara in a, in a gruesome, gruesome fashion. July or January was a terrible, terrible month for this reason. Um, and we got moved into the gray zone, which didn't change a lot. I mean, they're allowing some level of, of retail to reopen, but pretty much everything is, is status quo, which means it's closed. Um, this upset some folk who thought they would at least be able to have a limited reopening this week. And one of them is a salon owner who is a well-known anti-masker whose salon has run afoul of uh, provincial regulations by reopening as a faux uh, film studio and she posted on her Facebook page uh, Fire Herji, that's Dr. Mustafa Herji, who is our medical officer of health. I can imagine you have him on later this afternoon. We do. Um, and it has a picture of uh, Dr. Herji's face and uh, says Fire Herji and you know his name is underlined in sort of this bloody scrawl. There's little devils on his shoulders. That in itself is not terribly newsworthy. It's, it's part of this general kind of negative trend and negative, which we can get into if you want, of, of hatred and ugly commentary directed at Dr. Herji. But under those was a comment saying he had to be removed by office by any means necessary, including force, and that his head should be put on a stick. That second comment was liked by Mr. Mark Wood, who was, the, who was until very recently, the leader of a group of hospitality owners who were pushing back against the lockdown. Um, a source had sent me these screenshots on Saturday morning. I, look, Saturday morning, I was going to have 
a nice breakfast. It's going to read the New York Times. It's maybe going to play some God of War and not get off the couch for a day. <laughs> um, by the time I saw these things, began to do my investigation, wrote a story about it, and then it blew up. Um, the, the, the threats and the aggressive language toward Dr. Herji uh, caught a lot of attention. As you saw, doctors and medical associations around the province uh, condemned the violence. A hashtag in support of Dr. Herji. I stand, we stand with Dr. Herji just kind of manifested online. And eventually, uh, both the Premier and the, and the Prime Minister uh, got in on the act, uh, supporting Dr. Herji and uh, condemning the, the violence, or the violent threats, I should say. Now, Grant, do, do you get any threats at all? Mm-hmm. Um, we wrote about some of it recently. Um, you know, the, the vitriol online has, um, it's grown over the course of the pandemic. I don't know why more recently, in the last few weeks, even before the, the uh, move back to the color coding system uh, was announced, it had gotten bad. Uh, we had to have uh, the we had to file a thing with the police. It's still ongoing, so um, I'm you know I can't say a whole lot about it uh, except for that it was a threat um, calling for the execution, assault, and murder of myself and Dr. Herji, as well oh. as direct threats against the prime minister. So. That's all in the hands of the police. I'm not sure where that stands at the moment. Uh, we had to file another report directly related to that yesterday. Um, there's a lot of hate mail. Um, there's a group that started on Facebook last a few days, dedicated solely to trying to disparage me and the standard. Um, uh, so we'll also be dealing with some of that. It's, it's really kind of turned ugly uh, in the last little while. I mean, it's always kind of been there. It's just now it's, it's sort of on steroids. It's, it's amplified. And, um, you know, in the past, I think, you know, when I started my career 20 years ago, you'd get hate mail even mail that contains something that could be perceived as a threat or as overly aggressive. And, you know, we really wouldn't do very much about it. We, we sort of would say, Oh, well, that's kind of poop. And if it got really bad, of course, we would call the police, but sort of our threshold to kind of, you know, break glass, uh, was really low. You guys may remember in 2018, yeah, I think it was in Maryland, um, there's a newspaper there called the Capital Gazette. Yeah, I do. And a Trump supporter with a long history of harassing news staff uh, broke into the, burst into the newsroom in the middle of the day with a shotgun and shot and killed five people, uh, four reporters and a salesperson at that newspaper. When the Capital Gazette shooting happened, pretty much every newspaper in North America that week uh, revised their security protocols. And we don't take any of this stuff lightly. So when someone says, oh, well, it's just someone blowing off steam. Well, we've seen what, what not, not getting, not interceding early uh, can possibly result in. So we take it pretty serious. And, that, and, as, and, as, you, and as you should, uh, I, I, I just want to, uh, again, reiterate, I, I appreciate you bringing that up because uh, initially in the very beginning about acknowledging the fact that this has been, this has not affected everyone equally. Yeah. Um, um, and I brought it up on, you know, both round tables, both on Tom McConnell and, and on Tim Dennis, like a local major industry that employs 6,000 people, the Niagara casino, they're all on CERT and they all make yeah. 70 grand a year. And I don't care who you are. You can't go from making 70 grand a year to making $24,000 a year. Well, um, keep in mind too. I mean, just on that point, I mean, I mean, 70 grand is, is you can live on that. That's a decent salary. It's a decent salary rich you're not no. rich in these, this day i mean look at the cost of housing look at the cost of food um you can make you can make 60 70 grand a year and you're you're not driving a an audi no you know 
you're 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 driving a Toyota. I mean, it's. It's, hey, 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 you got a couple Toyota drivers in this group. I Toyota still stand. Drivers. Okay, I'm, fair I enough. I still stand by that comment. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, you are right. You, you are right. And I just think, but I guess, well, here's my question. Um, I, I, there's so many avenues I can go down with this, but there's just the one piece, and I'll probably get more from Dr. Herji. Um, th there's a huge mental health component that that's, that's people are just at their breaking point. Now, mm -hmm. I acknowledge there's true breaking points, meaning I'm about to lose my livelihood. I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. And people contacting Trevor, the mortgage broker, and saying, I have to sell my house or I have to remortgage my house because I can't, I can't survive. Um, versus anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers, which try to mask that and try to get their, their, their agenda. But I still don't see any movement on any left from any level of government on the mental health component of this there's it just seems as though i i just people are putting dr herji who's who's using epidemiology to make a decision which is science okay and but that's his job it is not to worry it, it, it should be to worry about mental health but it's not it, like He's making a decision based on facts, but no one's there to support the mental health. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, I won't speak for Dr. Hertie. He's no. a particular man. You have him on this afternoon, you know, so whatever I'm going to say here, uh, take it with the caveat. He's the expert. And so yeah. I'm just sure order who's watching this go down. Um, Dr. Hertie made an interesting comment in yesterday's health committee meeting. He was asked by a counselor. You know, when you're making recommendations to the province or you're going to issue a Section 22 order like the one we saw in the fall that limited occupancy at restaurants. I mean, how what do you look at to make those decisions? Because online and social media, there's people who, you know, all, everybody's got their Facebook degrees in epidemiology yeah. and statistics, and they think they know what they're looking at. And they just don't they have no clue. And they're just sort of, you know, I think this means this without talking to somebody who knows. And he specifically said, and, and if I were you, I would ask him to talk about this on, on your podcast because it's interesting. He talks about kind of the, the four or five different things that he looks at when making a decision. Obviously, the first one is what's the virus doing? What's the data showing? Where are the infections? You know, who's getting hit? That kind of thing. But there's this, there's this secondary and tertiary things, which is um, what's the economic impacts? What are the social impacts? What are the mental health impacts? So we can talk to you in that in, in more detail that and you get a better answer from him on that than you ever would from me. What I would say though is um, you're right that we're in we're a year into this. We're at very minimum looking at not kind of being clear of it in a really significant way until the end of this year. Mm -hmm. um, and that has, so you're looking at, at some measure of reduced economic and social activity carrying through to the end of the year. I mean, honestly, if things go as officialdom hopes and there's, you know, we get to that 70, 80% of vaccinations by Christmas, I mean, if you can't get a date on New Year's Eve at that point, I can't help you. Um, right. Here, here's one of the interesting things to consider when you talk about the economic, social, and mental health impacts of the pandemic. Um, we've been, and I, I did a story a couple of weeks ago on how the, the variants evolve, right? These, these new highly infectious variants. Uh, today, they found the first case of the UK variant in Hamilton, which all things being equal means it's here. Uh, we haven't 
found the case that has it yet, but don't be shocked if you find out in the next day or week that there's cases of the variants in Niagara. They're like rats. If you find one, you're going to find more. Um, those variants arose because of our general irresponsibility, because people have not followed lockdowns, because governments have been too slow to act, that lockdowns were not sufficient. They were, they were always some kind of half measure because people violated them. Look at Niagara Falls this past weekend, lots of people milling around, the hotels are packed, all this kind of thing. We have, we have allowed as a culture, the virus to spread, we allowed it to grow. And the, you look, look at New Zealand, look at Australia, look at South Korea, they still have COVID, but they have smushed it down so aggressively that like this, this week, uh, Auckland is under a three day lockdown. They're going to be back to normal because they had three cases. That's, That's right. Three cases. And they're on it. We're like, we got thousands of cases a day. We're like, ah, oh, reopen. It'll be fine. We're in the situation we're in because we're irresponsible. The pandemic is going on longer because we've allowed it to go on longer. There's no if, ands, or buts about that. And so when we talk about the mental health stresses and where we are, we as a society have been so narrow-minded and so concerned about the tips of our own noses that we didn't think, hey, if we don't get a grip on this, we'll be in a lockdown in a year. And people will be under stress and they'll be financially under stress and they'll be emotionally under stress and we'll evolution to do its thing and create variants that'll make our lives harder. We've created this mess just by our broad-based irresponsibility. So if we want to be able to cope with these other deleterious effects, economic, social, uh, emotional, mental health, and so on, we need to buckle down and realize that we have to win this race against the virus which means we need to demand more of ourselves. We need to demand more of our governments. Um, if we do not, we're in for a longer haul than we need to. We, you know, the vaccines aren't coming fast enough, which is a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, I won't to do about mental health. That's Dr. Herjee's bailiwick. But I think I can say that we are where we are because we allowed it to get this bad. Uh, and these conversations that we have, I've seen it on social media, one of my stories on the weekend, people still deny that there was spread of the virus in restaurants. There was. They deny that there was workplace spread. I mean, that was one of the core drivers that got up to the awful month of, of January. Um, it's a refusal to admit facts. And we've dug ourselves a ditch so deep, it's going to take us a while to climb out. And so if we're really concerned about mental health and, and these effects, not only do we now have to deal with those effects, and you're right, more attention has to be paid to it. It's hard to do that, though, for a public health department in a healthcare system that's overstressed because it's still dealing with COVID on a, on a ridiculously high level. We got to get that infection rate down. We have to make sure that we're not being irresponsible so that public health and Pathstone and the health hospitals can devote the resources they need to to help folks who are struggling in that capacity. So I guess... I agree with, yeah, I, I can't debate any of those points. Those are like all, yeah. Well, it's I, good because you'd be wrong. Yeah, no, but I'm saying, yeah, I'm not going to debate it because they're, they're all correct. But I guess, like, would you not say then, I mean, and I said this on the Tom McConnell's roundtable last night, if you want to take a page, and I said this, you know, professors and teachers, you want to take a page out of how not to communicate. Take a page out of this pandemic. The, oh, yeah. The comms have been horrendous. <laughs> and I, I, I will ask Dr. Herji later on, you know, why wasn't there a press release on Friday? Why wasn't there, why didn't he get a, a, a head, 
He made the decision to go to Gray. Why didn't no, he get the press? So okay, okay. So you're already you're already wrong. Okay, uh, how? But well, two things. Dr. Herji did not make the decision to go gray. The, 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 this, is, this is one, I mean, we've, this again shows you, in no disrespect intended, people don't read the news, right? And so they come to conclusions and they say they haven't done this or they have done this and they don't know because they didn't read, they, they, didn't, they don't know the facts. So as we've reported, I don't know how many times now, I, you know, uh, it, I've reported more times and my hair is looking like I'm, I'm straight out of the 1970s now. Uh, Dr. Herji, his recommendation was not even gray zone. When he was asked by the province, his recommendation for all the reasons he publicly said and said again yesterday and, and the day before uh, was that he didn't think we should be reopening at all. And in fact, there are no medical officers of health, no uh, healthcare leaders and no physicians and experts who think Ontario should be reopening right now because the modeling all shows we're on a tipping point for wave three because of the variants and the provincial government has largely decided to ignore that modeling. Um, but it's the provincial government that makes those decisions, Brent. The provincial government decides what zone we're in. You may remember when the color-coded rainbow system was released, um, the, my colleagues at the Toronto Star found out that Ford had, the government had deliberately watered down the thresholds, right? He had made, he, he, he made, them, uh, he made them less strenuous. So they were even less useless than they ultimately were and because the, the star had exposed that, they had to go back to the drawing board and they put the levels at what was the experts said that they should use if they were gonna go down this kind of road. So it's the province that makes that decision, not Dr. Hurt. He doesn't make that decision. He offers whatever recommendation he wants and he can make section 22 orders. Now, why didn't, why didn't Dr. Hurt send out a press release? Well, they did. Uh, there was information in, when it was available from the province, immediately posted to the public health website the province uh, released, when they released their information, we had a breaking news alert up within minutes. We had a full story within an hour. That information was all out there. Here's the problem. People jump on Facebook and they want to hear the person. That I did my research. And usually by what they mean by research is they watch somebody else's videos and some quack talking to Joe Rogan. Uh, but but they, they didn't go read the news. They didn't go to the expert sources. If you were actually interested on Friday, you would have found it on the public health website, on the province's website. You would have seen it. Um, sorry, I just got to get rid of this phone call. Um, you would have seen it on uh, any of the major uh, news outlets who were covering it. It was all there. Where communication has been bad on the provincial government side, certainly, is that the provincial government didn't actually tell anyone we're making the announcement Friday. That was sort of the expectation based on the way they had done things before. And we still don't have a clear understanding from the province because they won't answer the question, how are you making these decisions? Like if you ask Kurji how he makes these decisions, he's gonna give you a pretty good answer as to kind of the factor he does and how he weighs those things. The province doesn't discuss that. They have these metrics, but they sort of maybe kind of use them, sometimes do, sometimes don't. And if you're a business owner, that leaves you with this huge amount of unpredictability that you don't know what's coming. Um, there's also been um, really poor communication on uh, things like the science modeling. Um, the science modeling from last week shows very clearly that if we take our hands off the reins and we start to reopen, we're inviting us a, a worse third wave. And he thought January was bad. This modeling should keep you up at night because the third wave with these more infectious variants could be much, much worse. 
Um, and in fact, the government's sort of ignoring that modeling and, and almost, I mean, it's so bad that the scientist responsible for the modeling came out yesterday and said they're, they're just misreporting uh, my, my findings. Um, it, it, there's also a communication failure in reaching certain, certain demographics. We know that people in their 20s have been the least likely to follow COVID restrictions, and they're the ones who were driving a lot of the virus spread in the, in the late summer and into the fall and winter. Uh, so there are communications failures. But when you say, Hergy made the decision, that's not true. When you say public health didn't say anything, that's also not true. They said something once the province made a decision. It's just, where are people looking? How do they want to be told? Um, and, and, you know, they're sort of focused on Hergy, I think, because he's a local face and a local healthcare authority, but he doesn't make these decisions. They're, they're making so them question, so question then, for you. Hamilton is in, in the red, red color right now, right? Yeah. yeah. And Niagara's in gray. Yeah. So who makes the decision that Hamilton goes in red and then Niagara goes in gray? The province. The province does. So then why are we the only one out of 27 to go gray? Because we seem like we're most safe. I think Dr. Hurd, like you have to ask Dr. Hurd what his conversation with the province was like. From what I can tell, he, he was just more per persuasive. Um, remember, there's not a public health, there's not a medical officer of health anywhere in Ontario who thinks we should be reopening at all right now. And the real risk is you're going to be in red zone. If, if, if we follow the UK pattern or the pattern of Ireland uh, and a couple of uh, Norway, I think, who reopened while case counts were still relatively high, they managed to stay open for like two weeks. And then they had to shut right back down again because the variants are so infectious, case counts exploded and they had to close everything down lest they end up right back where they were. Um, the province is choosing to kind of ignore that sort of advice. And, you know, who knows, there could be a, you know, maybe there's a business lobby that's putting a lot of pressure on Ford. I don't know, but he's not, he's not following the science. His government's not following the science. Um, the other thing about Niagara that makes Niagara a little bit unique was you have to look at when we peaked in January versus everybody else. So now as, as other communities in the GTA and Hamilton, as their case counts began to rise, we were a little bit behind. Right, we were moving in the same direction, but as a region, we were a little bit behind. Which is why, in early December, when places like Hamilton were already well into red zone, and other places had, I think, the GTA, Peel, York, had been put into gray, Dr. Hergy and uh, the leaders at Niagara Health went to the province and said, "Look, here's where the data is going. Like, it's very obvious that we're about to hit a crisis point, and we have so many long-term care homes and so many at-risk elderly people. You need to put us in red right the hell now." Like now, 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 because if you don't, we don't impose more restrictions and we, we don't are on, on that list for, for um, more and early vaccines, we're going to have a crisis. Province ignored that. We were put in a red zone until the 21st. And then, of course, the province wide lockdown instituted five days later. By then, it was too late. You cannot stop a pandemic by slamming on the brakes. There's no brakes to slam on. You got to think of it more like a great big ocean going cruiser moving through the ocean at full steam. You want to stop that ship, you can't stop it on a dime. You can cut the engines, but you're going to drift a long time before you can drop anchor. I mean, that's the way this works. See, what boggles my mind is that, that we're just implementing this new two-week quarantine in a hotel for people who travel and come back. And it just came up now almost a year after where my wife, I've mentioned this before, she's from Taiwan, and they've been having that since day one. Oh, yeah. Those other countries have, you know, uh, most of the South Asian, uh, South Asian countries have done a better job. Australia did a better job. New Zealand did a better job. 
some of our uh, Germany right now is refusing to reopen. Germany learned from the UK mistake and said, you know what, we're going to wait until that, which is what Herji and others have been advising. Wait till you get the infection rate really low, like we had in the summer when it was a couple of cases a day, some cases were zero. Then you start creaking open the door and it's much more manageable, especially now that more vaccines are coming. And that'll, keep, that'll start creating a downward pressure on the infection rate as more and more people get vaccinated. Um, so just to go back to your question though, why are we in gray and, and why other places are red? So we peaked in, you know, things exploded by late December into early January. Um, and so we hit our high point at the same time places like Hamilton were beginning to come down. Um, if you've read uh, my reporting, you will know that uh, we had an infection rate higher than Toronto for a time. We had a death rate higher than other communities that were, were in red zone prior to the province-wide lockdown. We have something, I haven't, I haven't looked at the, um, the comparison yet this week, but we had last week, we had like the third or fourth highest number of total deaths in the province, right? The only communities that had more deaths than Niagara were like Toronto, which is 2.9 million people in York, which is like, you know, a million plus. Um, so what happened was when the province decided to go back into the rainbow system, a community like Hamilton already had a much lower infection rate than us. It was already on its much lower than us. So um, when you looked at Niagara, just if, if you're just looking at the data and you're not considering other things and there are other things that matter, um, just on that metric alone, we're dropping, but we're not dropping uh, as fast uh, and, we're, and we're not at the level as some of these other places. So people who look at the numbers and they're sort of like, Oh, well, why aren't we in red? Because our numbers are very low. Anybody who says our numbers are very low, does not they're lower than a month ago. They're not low, right? Those are two entirely different things. We're on our way to low, hopefully, but we ain't there. So we're not, you know, there's no cookie cutter here. We're not the same as Hamilton. We're still where Hamilton was a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, you know, Herji will tell you what he's trying to do at this point is bias time. Uh, he's trying to buy us time to get the infection rate down even more so that if we do reopen, that that reopening is more than a couple of weeks and, and it can be sustained for some period of time. Um, you know, all the modeling shows, gentlemen, that if, if we got the infection rate down really low, which would probably take us another three to four weeks of, of full lockdown, right? Um, you could probably start to reopen and with the level of vaccinations that are going to happen, you'd never have to lock down again. Uh, but we're, we're blowing that, we are blowing that opportunity, uh, by reopening now. And, and it's, you know, another week of this, and it probably will be too late to stop the inevitable, just like it was too late in early December when the government ignored Niagara's pleas to move us in the red. I can't believe we opened anything in February. I was shocked. I thought March. For I mean, I, I understand if you're a business owner, look, if you're a restaurant, uh, and you know this as well as I do, restaurants function on volume, right? Yes. But the fact they can do takeout and delivery, I mean, that helps, um, but it's certainly not enough to make up for the, the losses they have for in-person dining and, and everything else that goes into it. Um, but the fact is, if we reopen and those variants um, are, are out there in the wild, and they start spreading around, we'll be locked down very fast. The, the worst case scenario in the, in the new modeling predicts early March. Um, now, that's if you kind of do nothing to stop it. Now, there are some measures in place. But on the other hand, if we had held the line for another month, uh, the odds are we'd roll into the spring with very low levels of COVID, which prevented the, 
variants from getting an opportunity to spread and vac vaccinations would ramp up. Um, it's a race and right now we're still in the starting blocks because we're making what some people would probably conclude to be very, very foolish and irresponsible decisions. Like, how is it though, and, and obviously it's partisan politics, I mean, like, and you, you did mention, uh, you know, the comm strategy, but also at the federal level too, right? Allowing UK to fly into Pearson consistently up until about a month ago. That's how we got the UK variant, correct? I mean... Uh, yeah, it doesn't travel on its own, it needs a host. Yeah, it, it needs a host, right? So, you know, borders were delayed. I guess this is going to be my frustration, um, and it'll be a huge disappointment for your industry, to be frank. Um, who's going to hold the politicians to account? Because, well, we do. No, I know, but like, are you? Because like, here's, here's, a, here, here's a stat for you. Between April and the end of June of 2020, there was a 25% increase in opioid use and deaths, directly okay. correlated. Uh, to the same time. No, we've got stories about it, right? No, no, I know, but no one's talking about that now. It's like as if it's, it's, I'm not saying you're not talking about it. I'm saying there's just no stories about it. People are dying. That's not true. Again, you know, not, 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 not to push back too hard here, but again, where are you seeing no stories? What are you reading? Are you reading the St. Catherine Standard? Are you reading the Globe and Mail? Are you reading the Toronto Star? Are you reading the New York Times? Are you reading the Washington Post? Newspapers are publishing these stories every day of the week. Okay. Pushing them all the time. There is an online narrative. There's this on these memes just take off online and then they get promoted by people who aren't reading. So are we, are we, you could say, you could say, are we doing more stories about COVID than we are about joint deaths or other mental health issues? Yes. Um, could you say that that's unbalanced coverage? You could probably make a case for it. And that's the case that I'm making. Make the case. To say there are no stories is a falsehood. To say that nobody's paying attention, also. To say that the, I mean, you know, we know about Ford watering down his decisions. We know about uh, the kind of orders that Hergy has been putting out in the community. We know about the pushback. We know about the nonsense that goes on at regional council. We know about the weird behind the scenes stuff in Ottawa that's led to the vaccine issues because the press is covering it. The narratives, these memes that exist online are usually fact-free or they're only partially factual. That's fair, yeah. One can argue that yes, more attention needs to be paid to this other issue that's just as important as other things going on in the pandemic. But to say that it's being ignored entirely uh, is, is, is false. It's just false. And you, you make yourself part of the problem when you do that. Well, I mean, I, I to, to to be, I'll I'll we'll push back on that. I I watch, I read Bloomberg, I read the local paper, I read the Global Mail, I read the National Post because of what I do for a living, and an opioid crisis, an epidemic. Um, I know for a fact, for example, I had to do I had to do a lot of digging to find it. But in 2019, there was 995 opioid deaths in BC, and since February of last year. Uh, as of February of 2021, there's been 1,295 opioid deaths. I mean, uh, okay. of COVID-19 deaths. Literally, Brandon, we literally did a story not long ago that showed that opioid deaths in Niagara had doubled in 2020. Okay. Like, we really just did that story. Okay. I, and so, I missed it. So Fair. Again, it, it's, it's not an issue of saying... Because I'm not on Facebook, by the way. So that has... I'm not even on Facebook. So I don't even... Like, I'm getting my news. I don't care what's on Facebook, Brandon. We published the story. We right. published it in our website. We published it in the hard copy edition. So I don't know what you're talking about. 
the 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 there is absolutely a case to be made that some of these other echoes and deleterious effects of the pandemic are not receiving the same level of treatment around the focus on the infection rate or how vaccines are doing or unemployment, some of these other hot button issues that are always on the, the front burner. I mean, the opioid crisis arguably wasn't getting enough attention prior to the pandemic. Yes. You know, I mean, and, and when you would publish them, um, they didn't seem to register often with government and the public because most people aren't opioid addicts. And so it doesn't register with them or they don't know somebody who is. The pandemic has affected all of us at once in one level or another. Um, but I'm also not going to sit here and go, oh, yes, you know, the, nobody's written these stories. And, and it, it's, it's just it's a frustrating thing because um, we are uh, constantly climbing up this mountain to get as many of these issues as we can. And the people who don't do this work, who aren't actually asking the questions, producing the stories, getting the government reports, filing the FOIs, uh, getting the government leaks, then sit in front of us and say, you guys aren't doing your job. And it's just not true. It's just not true. Well, I guess where I'm going with this the is- The whole problem of this pandemic that, that you know has happened almost from the start, that people craft arguments over nuggets instead of taking the context and then using that to make an argument. Well, so dig around to find information about BC. I mean, great, good for you. It's good that you did that. But to say that it's not covered, that we didn't do the story, also not true. That, that, you, that it wasn't on Facebook, it's not even a relevant point, as far as I'm concerned. No, my, yeah. my point being is I don't get my, I'm not on Facebook. I don't get my news from social media. I get my news from actual papers. So fair, if there was, a, if there was a, an article, I missed it, fair. But I try to consume as much information as possible. And that, that has a lot to do with my job. I guess where I'm getting at is that there's been a, a, a warning sign of a potential epidemic or pandemic of perpetual proportions, one of them being Dr. Teresa Tan back in 2005 in her follow-up report on SARS published mm -hmm. in 2005, that was literally just shelved by both levels of government. Yes, we know. And my point is, no one <laughs> followed up on that. It was like, and so- Also false, but okay. Well, nothing was done. Follow up on it, Brandon. Who didn't follow up? Was it not the Toronto Star? They did. Was it not the Hamilton Spectator and the St. Catherine? Now they did. We, That's how no. we found out. Yeah, but look, the government didn't follow up on it. Right. As, as the government is wont to do with just what every report and commission it's ever done. Yes. You started this line of inquiry saying, who holds the government account? It's bad news for the press because the press isn't doing it. False, false, false. I did a major series with the Hamilton Spectator uh, in February where we were looking, as we were through the first wave, we went back and looked at the first wave. We went all the way back to SARS to find out if anything had been learned from the SARS epidemic, that any of the things that were supposed to prevent this from happening uh, put in place to protect what was very obviously going to be a terrible second wave. And what we published, our, our story was very prescient. The, the series was prescient. The answer was no. And, and the long-term care homes and the government was not prepared and not doing the things that needed to be done to protect people from a second wave. I mean, I take your point. There are issues that aren't getting the attention, but I'm just telling you, you are leaping way ahead of the facts to draw a conclusion that this stuff is hidden somehow or not given attention. I've lost track of how many reporters and columnists wrote stories and editorials saying, why weren't the lessons of SARS applied? How did we get caught with our pants down so bad? I mean, I did a whole story 
early in the pandemic, uh, lengthy, lengthy interview with Dr. Herji that was extremely interesting about all of the systems that were supposed to be in place from SARS after the SARS commission that you're talking about, mm -hmm. half got implemented and then were either let go or simply not put in place because provincially anyway, the uh, preceding liberal governments and this conservative government just sort of shelved, shelved it and forgot about it because it was expensive, right? And, and not expedient. Um, federally, we got rid of our ability to build, make vaccines domestically, right? The, the Moroni government sold that off and nobody ever, ever replaced it. Um, I, I understand your frustration, Brandon. I just, I get frustrated and I'm sorry, if, I don't mean to sound so aggressive. Oh, I'm taking this all personally, Grant, don't worry. Good, good. Uh, but at the same time, you know, part of our issue right now is that a lot of that information is out there. A lot of it gets covered. But we also are in a world where people care a whole lot more over the new royal baby that's on the way. Yes, uh, that's true. Yes. Or... You know, there's that, there, there's people, and again, you can understand some of this, especially in a pandemic, if it's, if it's your business that's been closed and you're having trouble putting food on the table, you may care a whole lot less about the minutia of, you know, the lessons of SARS or what's happening in British Columbia or opioid epidemic that doesn't touch you necessarily, so you don't care very much. Um, that, that noise is hard to cut through. And Social media, and I, you know, I respect you're not, you're not get, gathering your news there, although you do watch Joe Rogan, and I don't understand why. Hey, he's great. Um, but, you know, we have lost a degree of, I think, we, I think what this boils down to, and, and maybe we can move on, but I think what this boils down to is we've lost culturally a sense of media literacy. Yes, no, that's, that, that I agree with, 100%. And so, and, you know, there's all kinds of issues, some earned, some not, where people don't trust the, the press. Um, and that's hard to cut through as well. And folk thinks because I've got a blog or I can, I can, you know, make a YouTube video or I can have a podcast that suddenly I'm an expert on something. Um, and that tends to dominate uh, a lot of what people are consuming. And, uh, it, and then, and then, you know, like we did a story like we did on the weekend where Dr. Herji's facing these threats and, and ugly, uh, commentary on, on social media and people are shocked. And I think you four probably know if you've seen anything going or three, I'm the fourth, uh, that that stuff just is out there all the time, uh, that it just reached a boiling point, um, sort of shocked people, but that's the kind of thing it takes them to wake up and see. Trev, do you, do you have a question? I was just going to, no, 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 no question. Like I, I, my opinion on all this is I, unfortunately, I think we've become a society of headline readers. Right. There is a lot of that. I mean, just just on that point, with the, uh, at the newspaper, we can track, you know, how many page views we have, how many interactions, the kind of analytics you guys probably have for your podcast. Mm -hmm. One of the things that that we're able to track is how long are people reading, and so you you can really quickly get a sense: are people clicking on a story and reading it, or are they clicking on a story, seeing the headline, or seeing the paywall, and then jumping ship and going somewhere else? Um, so you can actually see, and there is there is always a significant number of people who are doing exactly what you're saying, which is they read the headline, then they get outraged, they don't read the story, and then they'll come. I mean, I've lost track, by the way, guys, of how many times somebody, there was a guy I used to know 
don't really hang out with him anymore because he's he's not a particularly nice fella. But uh, he went on one of these uh, that hospitality uh, group that Mark Wood had been running for uh, up until recently, and we had a headline on a story. It was a paywalled story, so he couldn't read it. It didn't want to subscribe. Then wrote this post on Facebook on this group about how the story was so dishonest because it wasn't looking at this statistic and that statistic and this statistic when all he could read was the headline in the first sentence. All the stuff that he was complaining about was actually in the story. Yeah. He didn't bother to read it. He wanted to be outraged at something, so picked the headline, declared it clickbait, and then said we weren't covering the stuff that was literally in the story that we were writing that day. Yeah. And the best is on social media, you'll, you will see like a Facebook post. It'll be the photo, the headline, and go right to the comments. You know what I mean? Like they've read that, they go right to the comments, they get lost, you know, down the rabbit hole, and it just becomes a giant but to, but to be fair, and this kind of goes off of your Joe Rogan comment there, Grant, the one thing we do like about Oops. Joe is if you actually want to hear the whole podcast, three, full three and a half hours, you can actually watch the full three and a half hours and come to a conclusion of that, that conversation. Whereas I find a lot of people's podcasts or articles or opinions or blogs or whatever, it's, only, it's, it's basically confirmation bias. Do you know what I mean? And social media basically algorithms work. You will see more of the things that you like, right? Because that's how their whole business model works. You are interested, you're interested in uh, uh, hiking boots and you've been looking up hiking boots on different websites. You'll notice you suddenly have ads for hiking boots appear on your feeds or you look up a lot of a particular kind of opinion that opinion in different formats gets thrown at you in, in your social media feed um there's nothing i think particularly meritorious about joe rogan's podcast um it's out there for free like big deal um real journalism is neither cheap nor easy and for us to do our we're not we're, we're not a publicly funded service we don't get paid by tax dollars uh you know, so to the subscriptions that we, you know, that the, the, our subscribers help pay for the journalism that keeps the community informed. Uh, the people who complain about those paywalls uh, and the subscription fees, I would say, when you go to the grocery store, do you walk in the grocery store and say, I demand that you just give me this food because I want it? And I think it's terribly unfair that you're making me pay. When you go to get a new car, do you walk into the, the Toyota dealership? Because we're Toyota brothers forever here. Yeah. Like, just give me that Corolla because I want it? No. It would be a totally unreasonable thing. People will pay. What do you, how, quick show of hands, you three guys. How many of you have Netflix? How many of you have Crave, Disney Plus, or some other streaming service? And that costs you what for each of those? Between 7 and $10 a month, right? About that, yeah. Most people will pay for Netflix. Well, I mean, The Mandalorian and WandaVision on Disney Plus are wildly successful. So that's millions and millions of Canadians who have Disney Plus who are watching these shows and paying for that service every month. Your subscription to a newspaper is a fraction of that. People don't want to pay for that. They want their news for free. But the news is not free. You would not expect Disney to produce a movie and then just give it to you for free because you want to see it. Right. How do you expect the news to be free? 
No, and I, and I think that's actually a very good point. And I mean, that's why I pay for my subscriptions and whatever. Thank you for keeping me gainfully employed. Well, and you, well, you, you know that, right? And that's why I get to chirp you because it's amazing. I um, think a lot of the mentality, though, of <laughs> those that, that are fighting back and pushing back on paying for the subscription is in a lot of ways, we know that we are the product, right? When it comes to something like Facebook. So you've got these companies that, well, if you put your story in front of, you can essentially sell ad space, right? I get that that's not the only sort, like I'm not trying to justify and say, well, yeah, absolutely, Grant, you know, you guys should be giving everything for free and just sell advertising space. You guys wouldn't stay afloat if you did that. It's not a possibility. Well, historically, we never did though. I mean, think about it. I mean, I, if you want to talk about a separate conversation, newspapers made a terrifyingly stupid mistake when sort of the online marketplace began to become a real thing. That's right. You've mentioned that before, actually. Yeah, it, yep. it's, it's a long conversation, but basically newspapers screwed up out the gate, right? Yes. Historically, if you wanted to read the newspaper, you didn't get any of it for free. You had to pay for it, right? Mm -hmm. You had to go, it was delivered to your house or you got it at the newsstands or whatever you paid for the copy of that day's paper. If you wanted to watch the evening news, you didn't get that for free either because you paid for cable unless it was on the public broadcaster, which you pay for by your tax, right? So none of it was ever free. In, in the online digital world, people have been trained because of goofy decisions made by my industry and, and, and others, that everything was somehow should just be free. That if you want it, you should just be able to download it and that's the end of the story. Um, and so sort of retraining the marketplace to realize, no, in fact, you know, people need to be paid for their work, just like you get paid for your work, uh, is, is proven more difficult than you'd think because it's such a common sense thing, but there we are. Yeah. And I guess in the, in the final, which can lead into another uh, podcast, cause you are busy today. So I'm going to let you go. Uh, but something that I do want to tackle, which is, is the, the bill that was passed by the federal government to compensate or subsidize uh, news organizations. I, that, I forget what the bill was called, um, but you, just for full uh, transparency, are not, you, you do not fall into that category. Um, not me personally, we have, so there's two, there's two things I think you're, you're sort of talking about at once. Um, one is sort of the general government funding for just about every employer in this country, right? That, that, that most businesses got some level of subsidies to keep themselves running through the pandemic. News organizations no are different. You know, different than, than anybody else. Um, the, the specific initiative you're talking about is called the, the Journalism Initiative. Um, and one of our reporters, and you'll see our bylines, it'll say a Journalism Initiative reporter, um, our, on, on Niagara Daily's team, uh, that's Sean Vanderklis, uh, who's right now functioning as our education reporter. Uh, that was to provide a little bit of funding so newspapers could hire extra people. Um, it doesn't really address like the systemic issues that the news industry, which you're right, it would be a whole other podcast. Um, but no, me personally, no, no. And most of us not. I mean, we're, we're, we're not, we're not government employees. We don't get paid publicly. Although again, for the pandemic, uh, the, the newspaper is getting some level of that funding, just like any other, uh, any other business in this country. Cool. All right. Well, that was Sorry, a pretty I've, been, I've been kind of a windbag today, guys. I apologize. Well, no, we had, we had a pretty good it's debate, good. which is really good. Um, I think we should start a new segment, though, on the show. What's in your background? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So ask the wait. <laughs> what do you want to? No, I'm just joking. It's That's... more more because of the five for Korea, but I know it was his daughter's birthday. 
Yeah. Oh, okay. that's right. Yeah. It's not, <laughs> just for anyone wondering, that's, that's uh, that Muhammad Ali and George Foreman right behind me here. Okay. All right. You should actually write some uh, clever messages on your whiteboard back there. Your message. Uh, yeah, the lighting's not good enough. You wouldn't see it. I'd have to. I'd have to move over there. That's the way I'm feeling. I've got uh, uh, Millennium Falcon, AT Walker, and Yoda right there, and yeah, I got to put lights behind them or something to get them lit up. Excellent. Uh, well, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Um, and and really, uh, you'll find Doctor Herji extremely interesting. Uh, yeah, looking forward to it. You know, uh, feel free to cut out anything I said about the pandemic in favor of Dr. Herji. He's, he's the guy who knows. For the record, we will not uh, edit anything because we don't want to get branded as one way or the other. This is the full, unedited. Um, yeah, uh, the only thing I clean up is coughs and sniffles and pops and cracks. That's it. That's well, it. Just, just, keep, just keep in mind, you know, it, when it comes to something like a pandemic, it's not a question of partisan sides right? It's a question of facts. The facts are the facts. And they do not care. They don't care about what we like. And, and if we're going to get through this mess, people need to start to realize that. Well, thanks very much again. Um, and uh, I, I mean, uh, I, I hope that we get a chance to, after this is all over, actually meet in person again. Uh, that would then, be nice. And then uh, get caught up on how else you're going to be holding the government to account. So I'm going to be pretty looking forward to that. So Okay. Well, there'll, be some, there'll be some news coming out that way soon. Have a good day, gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you very much. Appreciate your time, Grant. See you, Grant. Bye, you too. Be, be well and be safe. Yes, you too. Bye. Well, everyone, uh, we'll wrap it up, I guess. Uh, thanks for listening to the episode. Grant had to go. Uh, fair enough. But I think if I – did I – he's probably got another slamming article coming out. Against your sounds like there could be. Yeah, right. <laughs> that that's funny. The, the only thing I'll say about that is the episode that Brandon is referencing. I had let Brandon know about. Uh, I forget the the episode number. It was end of December. Uh, Alex Berenson is his name. Um, uh, New York Times bestselling author. Uh, previous previous uh, writer i believe was it new york times that he wrote for before uh, or was it the washington post no it was, it was a reputable it was a reputable paper new york, paper. Times. New york, york times. times okay so reputable source that he used to write for did a lot of research wrote a couple of uh covid i guess we call them leaflet booklets what was his name again uh, alex alex berenson b-e-r-b-e-r-e-n-s-e-n i believe yep. is the spelling of it so yeah he's he's an author um and he was just for people to understand um he's a covid contrarian yeah cause of that's the movie that he did cause of death and then unknown um is what he's done and yeah he used to be uh number one new york new york times yeah bestseller yeah so yeah new york times bestseller for for that sort of Novels stuff, but stuff. actually, yeah, but actually worked at a reputable, well-known newspaper prior to going out on his own and doing his own thing. Right. So yep. anyways, that that's where the whole grant thing came up and commenting back and forth about Joe Rogan. But that was cause we, we had mentioned that, that, you know, possibly talk about that on the, on this episode more so specifically because not saying Joe Rogan is the best source for news, Say, stating that Joe Rogan has 
is very influential. He's got a big audience, sure. right? And to, yeah, it's still recording. Yeah, still recording. And then the to have that uh, um, that platform that he does come out and have that story there, you know, we just wanted to ask and, and have a conversation of relevance, you know, and see if there was any facts to what Grant has done from research. But again, is right, what it so is. So we wrap this one up. We're at an hour, aren't we? Yep, we are. Yeah, yep. something like so that. So thanks yeah. everyone for listening and uh, sharing and caring and uh, I'll just do a Bondo, Well, but I'll just throw it in there okay, from a, a previous recording. That'll be easy enough. Help us help you stay informed. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Hey, 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 hey. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.